Welcome, everyone, to the Genetics Podcast. I'm here today with Daniel MacArthur, the Director of the Center for Population Genomics, based jointly at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in Sydney and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne. That is Australia. It's, I think, 9 at night for Daniel and 10 a.m. for me here in the UK. So thank you, Daniel, for giving up your evening to make this happen. Absolute, absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks, Russell. No, thank you. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, I hope. Daniel has led the development of some of the largest data sets in human genetic variation, and we're going to cover what he and his team has learned, what they've taught the field, and also what they haven't learned, and how that's motivating some of Daniel's next big research focus areas. I'm also hoping that we have time to cover some other big topics that aren't necessarily directly related to genetics, but are, are certainly one or two squares away on the chessboard, so to speak, including how to fix the broken model of academic publishing, something Daniel has talked and, and tweeted a lot about, as well as advice and mentorship for early career researchers thinking about the dichotomy between academia, industry, or, or the lack of dichotomy, uh, potentially, as the industry has changed. So with that long intro, Daniel, welcome to the podcast, and, and thanks so much. Thanks, Patrick. Absolute pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. I'd love to jump right into the large genetic data sets that I reference, which are, of course, Exac and its sister or uh, sequel Nomad. The Exac preprint actually was one of the first and I think possibly the very first paper that I read during my PhD. My my supervisor, Matt Hurls, handed me this paper. I think it was a preprint at the time and said, uh, read this top to bottom, see if you can reproduce some of the methods. And one of the things that actually struck me at the time was just how open you all were. You shared everything, data, methods, all the code. And this is not something I was used to seeing in papers. Normally, it was uh, see here for the code and data that it was a broken link. And, and we will get back to that. But I'd love if you could actually take us back to when the idea for Exact first came about. What was the idea for those who aren't familiar with the project? How did you get it off the ground, in particular, coordinating hundreds of investigators around the world to share data? Great question. And it's a, it's a good nostalgia trip for me, actually, to, to go back to the early days of this. So this, this really dates back to the first year after I'd started my lab, which was back in 2012. So I, I had a, a brand new lab. It was at the, the uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and the, the Broad Institute in Boston. We had just started sequencing our first genomic data from patients affected with rare diseases. And this was a collaboration with a, an Australian group I'd worked with for a very long time, a set of patients with different muscle disorders. And we had run exome sequencing, which is a technology for uh, looking at the the sequence of the protein coding bits of the genome, and as we as we started to analyze that data, it became increasingly clear that it was very difficult to make sense of the variation we were discovering in in patients with the existing databases that we had of variation. For a few reasons, the existing databases that existed out there were, were pretty small. It was a, a, about 6,000 individuals at the time, and they had been generated using older technology. So there was a lot of inaccuracies and errors in the, in the existing databases. And so I, I, I started to get this germ of an idea in my head that we could actually take advantage of the fact that the Broad was now sequencing more exomes than anywhere else in the world and build our own reference database to take advantage of all of these tens of thousands of people that were being sequenced and, and, and put that all together. And initially, that was just an idea. And actually, it seemed pretty insane when we first started it because of the political complexities around that. But I got a, I got a lot of help early on, in particular, benefited a lot from conversations with a, an amazing mentor, David Altshula, who, who later went on to become chief scientific officer at, at Vertex. And David is a master of understanding the motivations in academia and how to make big things happen and even in the sort of complex political space of, of academia. So I spent a lot of time talking to him and to, uh, to other mentors like Mark Daly and Sait Katharason. And it became increasingly clear that this was actually possible. There were a few different strands that were coming together that, that 
would make it feasible to build a, a huge database. The first of those was the sheer amount of data that was being produced. So we had about 100,000 exomes by then that had been generated at the Broad that we could potentially use. The second was that there were new methods that had just come out that allowed us to look at genetic variation at this massive scale. So it became possible for the first time to think about actually calculating a particular site of variation across tens of thousands of people at the same time. And then the third was, I think, that we, we had an unusually collaborative group of investigators who were involved in these very large exome sequencing projects at the Broad Institute. Uh, these, these were people who were who had were typically generating these data with a particular scientific goal in mind, usually a case control study of some complex adult onset disorder like type 2 diabetes or heart disease. But they, they could see the benefits of making that data available to a bigger project that would then create a, a reference database that anyone in the world could use to um, analyze their rare disease patients with. And so we set about trying to build that, but that was really the genesis for those, those early conversations about the, the politics of getting this right. And how did you assemble that? I assume there was an initial core group of 10, 20 investigators and organizations. How did you assemble that core group and what were their motivations for getting involved? So we, I think the first EXAT consortium had, I think it might've been about 25 investigators involved in it. And that was it was a um, it was a pretty pragmatic set of decisions. We we really we we wanted to build this as a consortium from the ground up as a as a consortium that would be functional and actually work together well. And so we chose the investigators we worked with pretty carefully. These were all people who had developed large collections or cohorts of sequencing data, but also they were all people who were genuinely pleasant to work with. So we kind of scored them on this on this yes. measurement of, you know, had lots of data and also were, were just genuinely decent human beings. And that that collection of investigators uh, was was really the core for a whole host of, of downstream aggregation activities later. And they were they were amazing actually. The it is, as you I think hinted earlier, in in the space of academia, there's often a reluctance for people to share data. They're often very suspicious about the idea yeah. of someone else taking their data and doing things with it. And I think we got very lucky in having a, a set of people who were not just willing to make their data available, but also genuinely excited about the opportunity of using this aggregation to benefit the uh, interpretation of variants in rare disease. Yeah, there was that article about the the research parasites, right? So, sometime, yeah. uh, sometime in my memory is hazy, but uh, the research parasites who were taking all this pesky public data and, and making something useful out of it. <laughs> That's right. How dare they, right? But but I think and probably a point we'll come back to later. But I think in genomics in general, there is a there is a better culture than in many areas of science about that data sharing. But we were fortunate enough, I think, to be parked in a particularly collaborative corner of that of that community. So a lot of people who were genuinely very happy to to have their data used. If my memory is correct, the first major publication or not a publication in the strictest sense, but the post on BioArchive was sometime in 2015. What were the biggest things that you all learned? What were the big surprises in particular from assembling this very large data set and, um, and, and really starting to crawl through it and answer questions that you probably didn't even know you had when you started the project? I mean, there, there were there's, there was the scientific stuff we learned, and there was also the meta science aspects that we learned about, which in many ways were, were more illuminating. But one, one of the things we were very lucky to be able to do again because the consortium was so willing was that we were able to make our data available long before we actually wrote a publication about it. So we released the first version of EXAC, I think it was back in 2014. And that was, uh, might have been a, like, a, I think it was a year and a bit before the, even the preprint came out. And that was, that was a, 
extremely powerful for us because it meant that the data set was out there. People were using it. They were diagnosing patients using that data. It was by an order of magnitude, the largest collection of exomes that had been put out there into the public domain at that stage. And so it very rapidly became the default clinical reference database and got, got used very heavily, very quickly. But the, the thing that I learned from that was was not just that you can have more impact by releasing your data early, but that it also benefits your science. And as a result of having that data set out there and people crawling all over it right. and poking at all the edge cases and looking at their favorite gene and, and exploring the variants, when they found weird stuff that didn't make any sense, they would bring it back to us and we would dig further and, and figure out if there was a systematic error. I think that sort of crowd quality control was extremely useful for, for improving the, the quality of the data. And that happened really that that whole year between releasing the data set and, and writing up that first paper was was about that iterative process of, of quality control and, and improving the, the data. And, and then we got to do science. In that first paper, we wrote a lot about, in particular, we were able to discover a lot of new variants. So most of the variants that we found had never been seen before. But the other thing we were able to do, and this was thanks to some stellar work by uh, Caitlin Smoker, at the time a graduate student in Mark Daly's lab, was to develop a statistical model that allowed us to identify the genes where variants appeared to be missing. So particular classes of disruptive variation were less common than what we would expect to see by chance. Um, and this is obviously an area you know well, you did a lot of scientific work in this domain yourself. But the, the that was that was very important because it, it pointed us immediately to a set of genes where it was clear that they were very important. There was almost no one in the data set who carried uh, predicted disruptive mutations in these genes. But for, for about three quarters of them, we, we had no idea what their actual function was. There's no associated disease. There's no associated biological annotation. We just know that these are really these are really critical genes. And that, that list of very highly constrained genes was uh, was the basis of a lot of the work that was done in that publication and also ended up, ended up guiding a lot of downstream disease discovery work as well because we could prioritize those genes for, for, for identifying potential disease-causing variation. It's, I think it's hard to overstate how useful that concept of the of the loss of function constraints. I think I used or heard the term every single day during my PhD, probably without fail from 2015 to 2018 or, or whenever it was, because it, it's such a useful concept. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. What? Yeah. How do you find these constrained genes? Why are they useful? And, and some of the applications to rare disease, gene discovery, drug therapeutic discovery, because I, I think it's just such a it, once I think once it's explained, it makes a lot of sense, but it definitely blew my mind in 2014, 15, when I first learned about it and, and something clicked into place that it made a ton of sense. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, the, there is something counterintuitive about it at first glance, I think, about the fact that really what you're looking for here is is not just the variants that are present in a data set, but the variants that are missing and and gathering information from the, the patterns of missingness from that data. But yeah, to, to take a step back, so the the class of variation we were particularly interested in were variants called loss of function variants, which is a basically a way of saying that these are variants predicted to disrupt the normal function of a protein coding gene. And these these are generally practically defined as variants that are expected to break the coding sequence in some way, either by introducing a stop signal or disrupting the normal reading frame or breaking the, the normal splicing of that gene. So these loss of function variants are relatively easy to find, although you have to do some careful filtering to, to get rid of the artifacts. But we, f we found a lot of them, so hundreds of thousands of these variants in, in XAG. And then what we were able to do, and I'll, I'll just say up front here that the, the fundamental statistical innovations here were all down to, to Mark Daly and, and Caitlin, but the, what we were able to do was to develop a model that allows us to predict for any given gene in the genome, how many loss of function variants we would expect to see by chance 
in 60,000 people if the only force that was acting on the genome was mutation. So in other words, if natural selection was not acting to remove harmful mutations from the population, then we would expect to see X number of loss of function variants in that gene. And we can then compare that number to the number of loss of function variants that we actually observe in 60,000 people in XAG. And the difference between those two numbers, that is the ratio of the observed, the expected to the observed, tells us how many variants have actually been removed by natural selection. And therefore, that is a, a direct measurement of the harm harmfulness of disruption of that particular gene. So, so constraint proves basically to, it ends up being a really neat mechanism of, of being able to define that this gene is, is important. If you mess with it, something horrible happens and, and those people you know, generally will not be, either won't be able to reproduce or, or at least are not able to be present in a, in a reference data set like, like XAC as a result. And that, yeah, so that loss of function constraint then, uh, because, because it is a measure of the, of the importance of a particular gene, it then proves to be a good way of prioritizing the genes that are most likely to be associated with very severe diseases as well. Yeah, and I think once you understand the concept, you start to see so many interesting applications. So there's the rare disease gene discovery application, which I, I focused a lot of my time thinking about, which was if there are people who are healthy or at least healthy enough to be in one of these databases that and none of them or very few of them have loss of function, these genes, then it tells you that when you're looking for a rare disease gene in a cohort of rare disease patients, you might want to focus on these genes because, as you said before, they've been suggested to be harmful if, if disrupted. But I think there's an interesting flip side of it as well, which is all those other genes, you, you can say the opposite and say drugging this gene, for example, is likely to be safe. So if, if I think an example actually that you all worked on is LARC2 in Parkinson's. So patients who have an overactive version of LARC2 um, can end up at a much higher rate with Parkinson's disease. So the question is, if we knock LARC2 down with a drug, is it safe? And you can actually use this data set to answer that question as well to say there are many people in the population that have LARC2 knocked out naturally, and they appear to be fine, right? So that's, what, what other interesting applications did you find as, as you're opening the data set to the community? Yeah, so I think that's the the right way to think about this is the idea of loss of function variants as these natural experiments that where there is a, a person out there in the wild who has a either one or in some cases both copies of that gene knocked out. And if you look at that person, you can then learn about what happens when that when that gene is removed. And that idea of genetic variation as a as a series of natural expression uh, natural experiments that we as geneticists can study isn't new, obviously. And we've learned a huge amount about human biology by looking at, at individuals who have particular diseases, and then and then going back and figuring out what genes cause those diseases. The interesting thing is we start looking at these very large datasets like like EXAC, and then later the, the even bigger Nomad dataset is that we can go in the opposite direction and and find people who have disruptive variants in a particular gene where we don't know much about it, or as you say, where we have a hypothesis that it might be a, an interesting drug target. We can find those rare people who do actually have a, a, a lack of expression of that gene and then and then study them to figure out, you know, are they healthy? In which case, as you say, drugging the gene is probably okay. If they're unhealthy, are they, are they unhealthy in a way that teaches us something about the potential right. side effects of that gene? And that's also been very useful. So there's you know, a great example Mark Daly often talks about, for instance, is DGAT1, a gene where we know that inhibitors we found in uh, clinical trials that inhibitors actually cause some pretty unpleasant gastrointestinal side effects. And it turned out later that if you if you have loss of function variants in DGAT1, you get severe inflammatory bowel disease. It's wow. a sort of Mendelian form of that disease. So I think these natural experiments are a really powerful way of, of learning about gene function. That was useful. And we spent we spent a lot of time exploring these loss of function variants in, in XAC and Nomad for, for that reason. LARC2 was the example we probably chased the hardest. But we, we did also spend a lot of time taking most of the 
common loss of function variants that showed up in the data set and, and trying to clean those up and then go through all the genes where we found these common LOF variants to see if we could understand you know, what's actually happening when these genes are disrupted and the degree to which these LOF variants are actually real, genuine loss of function variants acting in the population. Oh, and you mentioned the excruciating work of cleaning everything up. There are, there are definitely many unsung heroes of building these data sets that spent many years doing doing the very challenging work of going through and actually understanding what what's artifacts, what's real, and building pipelines that allow you all. I, I was always so impressed with how open and reproducible everything that you did was that someone could actually download everything on a Google Cloud data pipelines, rerun it, and then everything pops out exactly the same as uh, as you expect, which almost never happens. It's hard to understate for those who aren't doing science every day, how rare that is to find. So tell me more about that, that culture and why that was so important to you. The reproducibility aspect, I mean, that is something we believed in very strongly as a group and, and still do, is the idea that whatever um, whatever it is that we create, it should be possible for someone else to, to really thoroughly redo that with data that's publicly available. But that, that came about not just through altruism and wanting to make sure that others could benefit, but also the painful lesson, which is that if you, every time you analyze a particular data set, you can almost guarantee that's not the last time you'll analyze it. And I know you know this as well, but there's there's a uh, there's a tendency to, uh, to learn something new every time you run an analysis. Typically you'll find some artifacts that didn't show up the last time around, and then you go back, you clean up that artifact, you rerun your analysis. And if you don't have pipelines that are beautifully documented and easy to rerun again, you're going to spend all of your time recreating those pipelines and, and redoing them. And so as a result, it's actually a, a kind of a good form of self-defense to build full reproducibility because it means you know for sure that you can go back and, and clean those things up. But, but you, your earlier point is spot on, actually. I think it is often, it is not talked about enough, the fact that the real work of genomics is quality control. What, most of what we do day to day is we get a big data set and we filter it we clean it, we run a whole bunch of plots, we look at them and we scratch our heads because they don't look the way that we expect. And then we go back and we figure out you know, why, why they're wrong. And we repeat that process over and over and over again until finally we have a data set that we feel we can trust or we hit the point of exhaustion. Yes. But that is, in the, in the case of these big releases, Exac and Nomad, that was often multiple years of work by, by a very talented set of individuals who, um, who became over, over those years extremely good at, at figuring out why why puzzling results were puzzling yeah I'm, I'm smiling because i'm just remembering it in the in my phd with matt both matt and jeff barrett had to deal with me <laughs> thinking i discovered something amazing so many times only to be told that uh did you double check that it wasn't a bug or an artifact first so you get that drilled into you the first the first year i think of every phd student's life they seesaw between thinking they've discovered yep. something amazing and then realize they've they've discovered a bug in their own code that, that uh, produced that, that was a result. D- depressing mantra in our lab. And actually, I think I think I may have learned this from, from Matt Hurls, but but the idea that the more interesting a result is, the more likely it is to be false. The more skeptical you and should so be, yeah. The more, exactly. The, the more excited you intuitively become as soon as you see that result, the more you should just be jumping all over it, trying to figure out why it's absolutely wrong. Yeah, that's right. And because it, it almost certainly is. And it, it, uh, it takes a lot, I think, to convince, uh, particularly those two, Matt, Matt and Jeff, I know, <laughs> trying to convince those two of anything is uh, it's a tough ask. Yes. You recently moved from Boston to Australia in order to become the director of the Center for Population Genomics. And I'm really curious why you decided to make this move, what plans you have. Why not continue to grow Exact and Nomad to, to be ever larger orders of magnitude? What made you decide to switch and pursue something a little different? Yeah. 
I mean, certainly not because I didn't love the work that we were doing with Exac and Nomad. It had been, I mean, I, at the, the time that I moved, which was right at the end of 2019, it had been about eight and a half years at the Broad and the work was continued to be amazing. I loved the team that we had built. It was, it was just a great, great group of individuals and um, both scientists and, and human beings. But in, in 2019, there were a few different things that came together to, to make me think about a return. The, the biggest and most important one was, was family and really the, you know, we had been away at that point for 12 years. Those of your listeners who are Australian will know that there is a certain gravity to Australia yes. that just kind of pulls, tends to pull people back. And the, the idea of, for me, of, of our kids being able to grow up knowing their grandparents, knowing their cousins, growing up with Australian accents, that was that was very appealing. And and so we had we had been keeping an eye out for opportunities in Australia for a while. But then the the other thing that uh, had had really changed was the genomics landscape in Australia has shifted profoundly in the more than a decade that I was that I was away from the country. When I left there wasn't really genomics in Australia to speak of. And then by 2019, we had dedicated funding systems that were supporting genomic medicine. We've got large-scale national consortia that, that are overseeing uh, really large-scale efforts in, in cancer and in, in rare disease. And, and, I, and I think a, a major shift in culture towards the idea of genomics and data science is, is you know, as becoming a first-class science as opposed to, to something that, that was done overseas. So the idea of being able to take the lessons that we had learned in these very large-scale projects in the context of the Broad and being able to bring those back to Australia Australia and the unique challenges and opportunities that existed there was pretty exciting as well. And so in, in 2019, I, I started to explore various opportunities back in Oz and was very lucky to, to have been the support of, of two institutions, the Garvin Institute in Sydney and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, who, who were willing to come together and, and jointly fund the development of a centre that would be split across the two sites and uh, where we would then be able to build a virtual centre with people based in both cities that was very focused on building large-scale population genomics resources and tools with the idea of not just building foundations for genomic medicine in Australia, but importantly, doing them, doing that in an equitable fashion. And so that was, that was the genesis of the Centre for Population Genomics. And it, the, the scientific vision that, that we've been able to build there has, has really focused on this, this core idea of ensuring that as Australia moves into what is now very clearly a, a transformative era of, of genomic research and medicine, that we do so in a way where we're learning the lessons from, from other countries, but taking advantage of the fact that we have a unique and very diverse population here, including a large set of Indigenous communities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, as well as many uh, more recently arrived uh, individuals of both European and non-European ancestry. And a, a, uh, there's 25% of Australians are born overseas. More than half of us have at least one parent who was born overseas. So there's a there's a lot of diversity that we need to make sure is represented here. And if we want to get genomic medicine right here, we need to make sure that all of those communities are actually engaged in the process of genomic research, and that we build resources that ensure that they can benefit just as equitably as as Europeans can from the practice of genomic medicine. How does achieving that aim manifest differently in, in terms of what you do? Because with Exac and Nomad, you were first and foremost coordinating existing data sets to come together and share. Is is the challenge in Australia right now that those data sets don't exist and need to be generated, or do they actually exist and and they are already representative of the population but need to be brought together or or is it really about creating new representative data sets 
it, it definitely will require creating new data sets. And that's the consequence of the fact that, that I think, and this is this is true in, in countries all around the world, is that for there is a long history in genetics of ending up with large cohorts that are fairly European centric. And it's, it's not through maliciousness or specific racism that this has arisen. It's, it's I think, largely, and it's, it's also not that uh, non-European individuals are less interested in participating in genomics. In fact, if anything, they're, they're often more interested. The fundamental issue is that the, the typical approaches that are built for recruitment in these cohort studies and, and not explicitly designed to engage with work with communities outside that traditional Anglo-European uh, culture. That is the gap that needs to be filled and 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 we can't fill it through aggregation of, of existing data sets. So that the the real difference in the way that I'm that I've been we've set up the Centre to do science in Australia is that that begins right from the outset with community engagement, with actually going out and working with communities to understand what they think about genetics, what they think about participation in research, their understanding of those of those concepts, and um, and then and then how we can ensure that we can build we can do genetic research and build resources that actually resonate with the way that they think about uh, the their bodies in themselves and that they're comfortable and where we respect the community desire to do this the right way. That I think is the most important thing. Uh, this isn't a lesson that's unique to Australia and I think it's actually been fantastic to see now uh, projects launching all around the world that are much more focused on inclusion and equity than has ever been the case in the past. But, but the, yeah, and that, and that general recognition that if we are to do this properly, we actually need to talk to these communities from the very beginning and not just kind of cast the net wide, grab, grab whatever participants are the most convenient and launch our cohorts that way. How do you think about or balance the tension between on the one side value of open data, participation, research, data sharing, but also on the other side, the, the very real desire of communities in, in particular, I, I believe indigenous communities in Australia to protect their genetic data from exploitation and, and not have it, you know, simply like you say, cast into a net and taken away. How, how do you balance those two ends of the spectrum, which, which really from their own frame of reference are, are both equally right in many ways? And, and I think that the most important thing is to acknowledge up front that there is actually a fundamental tension and not try to sweep it under the carpet or say that there's that there is actually some happy middle ground where where everyone can be happy right. here. So in fact, I, you know, it, it is the case that from a pure culture blind research perspective, it would be ideal if all data could be made fully open and and any researcher could access that and reuse it for their own purposes. And that, you know, that that is that is the case. I have, you know, I've certainly benefited enormously in my career from the fact that there are many groups who have been willing to make their data available in various different forms in a way that we can reuse. So that, that's made a big difference. But at the same time, it is also absolutely the case that there are many good reasons why groups, particularly Indigenous communities, uh, feel a, a strong need to protect and think very carefully about the governance of the data that comes from those from those groups. There are long histories of uh, misuse of data that arises from those groups. There are long histories of a lack of consultation, of a lack of really of any respect given to those groups in designing research projects. And as a result, there's a, often a, a real lack of trust about the research situation and, and a desire, I think, perfectly sensibly to ensure that, that Indigenous voices are involved in making decisions about exactly how a particular data set is used. So for us, I think the first step is acknowledging that that tension exists. And then the second thing is, is working with groups that are directly thinking about Indigenous communities and what they want. So for us in the, the centre, what that has meant has been building a, a deep set of collaborations with uh, Indigenous researchers who are driving and leading 
Indigenous Genomics Consortia in Australia. And we're really fortunate, I think, to have some fantastic, uh, highly collaborative, extremely thoughtful leaders in this space. Uh, in, in Australia, people like Alex Brown, who's based in South Australia, or Azure Hermes, who's, who's based in, in Canberra, both themselves, um, people from Indigenous communities with, with strong backgrounds, in Alex's case, in, in medicine, in Azure's case, in community engagement, who deeply understand the needs of those communities and are now driving the, the research forward in those spaces. So our view here is that we as, as genomicists provide support to ensure that those efforts can get up and off the ground. And what, this, what the centre will be doing is building, is uh, funding sequencing and building data infrastructure and long-term systems for management and analysis of data that fits with the needs of Indigenous communities to have self-determination and ensure the sovereignty of, of their data set. I'd, I'd love to hear more about what you see over the next two, three, four, five however long your your vision goes out for for this. What are you taking from your eight and a half years at the Broad Institute, who are obviously the world's leading genomics institute and do a lot of things right? What are you doing differently here? And what are you what are you taking from there and porting over to say this works really well and we're going to run with it? And, and what are you doing differently in terms of the way you think about generating these large scale inclusive data sets and running the center as a whole, not just the data sets, really. The, I'd love to hear more about the whole whole philosophy. I'm not sure so much, actually, that there's, there's necessarily huge differences in the way that we're thinking about it, in part because the, the Broad's thinking has evolved in parallel with with so many other groups around the world in, in starting to think about all these things much more inclusively. The um, We've moved from a very reflexive and responsive model of, of cohort use, where it's all about what data sets we can, we can grab to a model where, where there's very active thought being put into making sure that the, the groups that aren't currently represented do get represented. And in fact, a huge amount of work now under, under underway at the Broad, including people like Alicia Martin and others who were leading work there. In the centre's setting, I mean, the, the way that we're approaching this is building community engagement into the, the process or actually having a, a team embedded within the centre that thinks about this. This is actually, it's the first time that I've had anthropologists and social scientists in my team, and it's been enormously fun having a set of people who come from a, you know, very far from genomics as a background, but who bring in really deep experience in thinking through the issues associated with engaging diverse communities in research, and then being able to bring those worlds together, think about genomics and culture and anthropology at the same time. So that that part's been fun. Then in terms of modifying the way we work to the uniquely Australian aspect of the landscape, there there's been a few changes. One has been um, in the broad environment, we didn't have to, to think as hard about, we. I mean, we used cloud computing for everything that we did. So we had the benefits of enormous scalability. And that's um, that was a lesson learned the hard way at Broad is, is that if you're not on the cloud, it's basically impossible to do analysis at the, at the scale of ExaquaNomad. So that's something we've moved over to Australia as well. And the whole center is built on cloud computing from the outset uh, at, at the moment on Google Cloud. But what we are doing is making sure that we have data localization sorted out. So that means that the data that is that we in, that we bring into the center, particularly the data from indigenous communities, but in fact, all the data sets we collect, that never leaves Australian soil. So although it's on the cloud, it's always based in Google data centers that are physically in, in Australia. And that, that I think is something we're going to see a lot more of as, you know, well, we're already seeing a fair bit of it as, as other countries launch their own national genomics projects. There will definitely be an awareness of that, that need to maintain jurisdictional boundaries and sovereignty of, of data that's being collected. And then I, I think a lot of the rest of the stuff that we're doing is very well aligned with just 
making sure we're following global best practices in data security and large-scale analysis approaches and, and those types of things. I'd love to get your thinking on, and and this is definitely a loaded question, The how useful genetics is or isn't in therapeutic discovery. There's a level of hype that genetics <laughs> has gotten, and, and from some corners of Twitter, it's all, it deserves it all. From other corners, it's the exact opposite. It's been a huge waste of money. I'm really curious for your, I'm, I, I imagine it's probably somewhere down the middle, but I'm interested in your take of whether genomics deserves the hype that it gets and what it needs to do differently. I mean, obviously I'm biased on this. I'm not sure I'm right down the middle. I think I'm, I'm a bit of a genomics evangelist generally. But it, I mean, it is interesting when you talk to veterans in the pharma industry, they've, you know, there's this weariness about them as they sometimes talk about yes. genetics. They've seen previous fads and drug discovery come and go. They know what it looks like. There is definitely a, a significant component of hype in this as, as with any other major transformative technology. Um, it's very easy for people to over-talk it or deploy it in ways that it's not, where it's not actually productive. Um, but I think genetics is definitely not a pure hypey endeavor. And in fact, I think it probably will end up being the, the single most important tool to date in in characterizing the function of human genes and and then understanding the mechanism by which we can actually then intervene and therapeutically and, and create the outcomes that we want. And the reason for that comes back to that, that concept of experiments of nature. We have historically had a fairly limited toolkit to understand the function of human genes. That's often involved understanding people who have a particular disease, but also spending a lot of time in animal models, in cell models, in various abstracted versions of of underlying human biology. And all of those have their have their limitations. The the benefit of human genomics is that we can look at the by looking at genetic variants that disrupt the impact of a gene, we can actually look directly at what happens when you mess with that gene in a living human, where that gene is affected in every cell in their body over their entire lifespan and understand what what impact that has on biology. And that that is, I think, a transformative thing. It does it teaches us something about about biology that we often couldn't learn in any other way. And that's particularly true for some diseases. If you think about you know, mental illness schizophrenia is a great example we're, we're talking here about diseases of the adult human brain a fundamentally inaccessible organ right. that you can't model in a, in a dish you can't model in a mouse uh, these are not diseases that i mean that you can come up with with various you know very limited models with all of their caveats but ultimately the best model that we have is to look at humans who have these diseases and then use genetics and other approaches to trace back the underlying genetic circuitry that's gone wrong and therefore what the biological mechanisms are and the other nice thing about genetics is that it it teaches us about direction of effect and mechanism. So if we see that a loss of function variant has an effect that pushes disease in one direction, then it's pretty likely that, for instance, if you have a protective loss of function variant, then it's it's pretty likely that a drug that inhibits that gene is also going to have a, a related effect. So, and I think we, we're now in a, in a world where, I mean, after multiple years of probably too much hype at times, including some wild promises about all common diseases being solved you know, through genomics in a very short time frame, I think we've now settled into a more mature understanding of, of what we can do here. And we now have big success stories in genes like PCSK9, where human genetics were critical for understanding the impacts that that gene could have on, on LDL cholesterol, where we already have some drugs, admittedly, with, with still with small market effect, but still some, some new successful drugs in that space. There's a whole host of new drugs coming out now based on other discoveries in that heart disease area, APOC3 and, and other genes involved in triglycerides and, and LDL cholesterol. And, and these, I think, will be transformative. And then this is just scratching the surface. There's a lot more to come as we start to dig more and more into these very large data sets of variation. I mean, fundamentally what we're doing here is as we build up a big enough data set of hundreds of thousands of humans with information at every position in the genome, 
and then all sorts of information about their clinical phenotype is we're, we're reconstructing the genetic wiring diagram of, of the human. We're reconstructing that, that map that goes from genome sequence right the way through to biology and health. And with, with a large enough matrix like that, we can really start to get to the point that we have a deep understanding of mechanism, most genes in the genome, in a way that really teaches us how we could intervene to, to reduce the risk of disease. So yeah, I, I think there's some hype that has been for sure, but I also think I think this is already changing the world and it's going to change it even more. Yeah, it's it's been remarkable as well, I think, to see some of the early data that started to come out last year around the one-time gene editing. You mentioned psych catheteration, and I think they've published some of this data, but that's such an interesting and, and fascinating thread that I think will be pulled over the next decade, really, of how, how far can we take that uh, that concept. I mean, it's, it's a glorious time to be in, in human biology, right? You've got these two threads that are coming together at, at one particular point in, in history, which is an increasingly deep understanding from genetics of the, the ways that genome sequence can affect biology. And at the same time, a whole set of different platforms that can be used to tweak the sequence or the expression of genes in very fine scale ways. So CRISPR gene editing, as you, as you said, you know, from, from Verve and other companies is a fantastic example where we can already start to do that type of work. There's also all these mRNA platforms that allow us to, to subtly affect, you know, upregulate or downregulate the expression of a gene in particular ways. These tools, along with this very close understanding of human biology, will absolutely change the way that we approach these things. So yes, yeah, it's, it's remarkably exciting. And I think we'll, we, we're already starting to see an impact of that in rare disease. That's, that's the place I'm, I'm currently most excited excited about it because I think that's where with you know 95% of rare diseases still having absolutely no therapeutic approach at all this is where we will have the that's, biggest impact the fastest that's right and and I think the thing that will make more of the pharma industry into believers will be the first set of common so rare diseases obviously yeah. transformative impact but the first set of common diseases where genetic subtypes of those common diseases can be treated really effectively lark 2 parkinson's apoe4 alzheimer's obviously alzheimer's has been a very tricky area genetic subtypes of nash or genetic drivers of of nash i think there will be a couple examples in the next few years that people start to realize actually this Alzheimer's, this enormous problem, if we start yeah. taking bites out of it with genetic subtypes of individuals that we can actually treat some kind of core underlying biological process, I think that that might be a, a turning point as well when we start to see the first few of those examples. Totally agree. So the application of this technology to create there are novel, fundamentally novel therapeutics with enormous market sizes that that will make a believer out of anyone. I think. Yes, I uh, as we're talking about market sizes, I think it'd be a good segue into academia versus industry or hybrid of the two. You had a, a really great tweet a couple of weeks ago, and I, I can tell this is just an area you're really passionate about, how the boundaries between academia and industry now are, are really more porous than ever. And a early career scientist, late career scientist, graduate student, whoever thinking about these two shouldn't think of them as completely independent fork in the road tracks. Um, I'd love to hear your thinking on this. What can What can people like you do to better prepare people earlier in their career on making these decisions? And, and how do you think about this academia versus industry dichotomy? It's amazing how much it's changed in the time that I've been, well, through the course of my career. I mean, I, I, as, a, as a baby PhD student in Australia, I didn't think I'd ever met anyone who worked in an industry setting probably right through until the last year of my PhD. 
I did consider industry options as I was contemplating my my postdoc transition, and you know applied and went through it, and actually a couple of interviews at that stage, and then but then ultimately decided to stay in academia and go into that postdoc role. Actually, at every job transition since then, I spent a fair bit of time deciding, actually sometimes agonising over opportunities that exist both in academia and, and in industry. And I think a big a big part of the reason for that is is as you know as you know better than anyone that the the opportunities to do exciting research in the industry space are now way bigger than they were historically. And at the same time, boundaries has also become greyer, I think, on the academic side. I mean, a lot of the projects that I ended up doing in the academic setting were, were industry scale projects. You know, we were here, we were talking here about doing, you know, large production scale engineering work. Uh, so that that was, you know, often doing academic, uh, academic work in a way that was closer to the way that we might think about production scale work in, in an industry setting. So, so I do think that the boundaries have become have become grayer. And 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 also there's a, an increasing ability for people to move back and forth between between those worlds. The other thing that has changed and that I really enjoyed about my time in Boston is that the perspective of academics about moving to industry has gradually shifted. And actually, it's been one of the slightly less pleasant surprises about moving back to Australia is I feel like I, I kind of jumped about five years back in time. When I talk right. to, sometimes to Australian academics, there is this sense still that someone who goes from an academic role into an industry role has taken a step back. You know, they must not have been good enough to stay in academia. And But while I was in Boston, it was it was that was absolutely not the case. In fact, for the trainees who came through my lab, with every single one of them, you know, I worked from the outset to ensure that they they had exposure to both academic and industry opportunities. Every every PhD student and postdoc who came through the group, I made sure that they had they were involved in at least one uh, industry sponsored research agreement, so they could get to know industry scientists and understand how how things worked there. And in fact, the, the majority of my trainees went on to industry positions out of choice because they you know they had they had great offers in both academia and industry, and they went they went down the industry route. And I was delighted about it. So that things are changing, but we still we still have a lot of work to do. And I'd say particularly in Australia, we still have a lot of work to do to educate people about about that shift. The point I was making in that in that series of tweets was encouraging people to avoid a, a particular mistake that I've seen a lot of young academics make, which is to think about career choices in this very serial fashion where they they first say to themselves, okay, you know, I'll think about industry. I know it's not evil. I know that industry, you know, there's good options there. But first, I'm going to think about academia and I'm going to pursue all of my possible academic options. That's my plan A. Right. And then if academia doesn't work out, then I'll start thinking about plan B and, and consider my industry options or at least, you know, the first of those. And that that is a very risky approach to, to planning a career because it means that you spend all of your time in that in that first phase, you know, not building any of the connections or the skills or the, the marketable qualities that are required to transition into another role. And you're kind of leaving yourself open to the weird arbitrary random aspects of, of academic life. The fact that if you get, you know, if you miss out on a couple of grants or your papers get badly reviewed for one reason or another, you can end up through no fault of your own or, or you get given bad projects by your PI. Right. Yeah. You can end up through no fault of your own, you know, with things just not working out in academia. And then suddenly you're having to make career decisions at a point where you're not feeling great about yourself right. necessarily right. and you haven't planned for, for the next step. So instead, my, my strong encouragement to young academics now is to think very actively about all of the possible options as early as they can and do that in parallel. So, so think to yourself, what are the things that I love about science or, you know, what is it, what is it that motivates me that, that drives me to, to get things done? Consider all of the 
possible jobs that involve that those types of activities and explore all of those in parallel so that you and then ideally as you start thinking about your next transition apply for jobs across all of those domains so yes you know apply for postdoc positions but also make sure you've talked to industry scientists you've applied ideally for industry roles that seem exciting and then interviews are very unpredictable you may well find that you get all sorts of different offers at different times and it's it's hard you know it's hard to get these things right but at the same time that way you can be pretty confident that you've done your due diligence the role that you end up in is probably the one that was best suited for you as opposed to just one you ended up in by default because you you had sort of left yourself no other option so and then the other message i tried to get across because I, I feel like i've spent so many conversations with young trainees about this is that it's, it's not your fault and you should not feel bad about the fact that academia has not been the path that you followed and that just because you're surrounded by other people who see academia as as the only path doesn't it doesn't mean you should fall for that kind of stockholm syndrome and yes. and get trapped in that mentality that that's the only way that you can be successful you you have to really think about what makes you happy and what actually allows you to have the biggest impact on the world and that in many cases will not actually be in academia and that's totally okay it's not nothing has gone wrong if you end up in a, in a different role i think that's so well said and and i personally had a lot of great people around me who said very similar things while I was a PhD student. But I also had a lot of friends who had people around them who didn't. And it's yeah. really hard when your PhD supervisor, as an example, is an academic hardliner, and you're not actually sure if it's right for you. And, you know, I think you saying that is so important, because there are a lot of people who's I think aren't hearing that directly from their supervisors. The only other thing I'd add that was personally really helpful for me was this concept of one way and two way doors that yes. there are decisions that you make in life that are one way doors, and you can't go back like, um, yeah, or, or they're, there's a a spectrum or degree of this but when you marry someone you've made a pretty significant commitment and it's hard to roll it back having a kid is another great example of that <laughs> even better example i think 10 years ago it was a little bit more of a one-way door when you left academia it was harder to come back in and and but today it's it's very much not so you, you can go work at vertex for two years and if you decide actually your heart is in academia, then there's a million places that would take you as a postdoc. Maybe maybe you are a little bit, you're two years behind where you might have been if you'd gone straight into the postdoc, but your experience is so much richer for it. So I think that's, you should ask yourself, is it really a, a am I making a decision for the rest of my life or am I actually going down this path for a little while and I can always circle back? And and just remember, there are there are people out there who value industry experience enormously in the academic setting. I can say in the center, actually, the vast majority of the people currently working in the center are from non-traditional academic backgrounds. Software engineers, people focused on community engagement, people who have taken very, sometimes started in academia, but have taken very different paths and become project managers, for instance, or other, done other things. That variety of skill set and the fact that we have people who have spent significant amounts of time working in entirely different industries, building up that, that different skill base has unbelievable value. And if you, you just need to find the right group who actually really deeply understands that value. But yeah, I totally agree that the, the door is much more two-way now than it ever has been. Thank I, God. I would, yeah, thank God. I was hoping that we could get to academic publishing, but actually I think this is a really good place to end and I'm going to use this as a um, as an opportunity to get you back in a couple of weeks or months because I think it is such an important topic. And from a kind of business fundamentals perspective, the monopoly that the large publishers have is, is a really tough nut to crack. So I'm really interested in, and a lot of people have taken a try that. So I, I'm going to suggest that we save that for the next time. But, but thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate you taking the time. As I anticipate, this was a, a really great conversation conversation and, and so appreciate you spending time today. Absolute pleasure, Patrick. And I, I think it is wise to push that back. If you get me started on academic publishing, I'll be here all night. Yeah, that's right. You need to go to bed or, uh, or <laughs> that, That's something. right. So I know it absolutely a delight talking to you. Looking forward to further conversations and, and working together on various things. Absolutely. Chatting to you. See you later, Patrick. See you later. 
Thanks everyone for listening. And as always, please share with a friend if you like the episode, leave us a review on your favorite podcast player to help other people find us or just tell somebody that you liked it and that you think they might like it. So thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.